Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Media Podcast and before we start, big thanks to Media Masters. Paul Blanchard's podcast about the media where you'll hear amazing one-to-one interviews with creatives and execs. You can find out who's on their latest episode a little later. Hello, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, we have a winner as Impress is chosen by a panel to be the official press regulator. But will anyone join it and what happens if they don't? Also on the show, Matt Deegan will be here to analyse the latest radio ratings, so you don't have to. Culture Secretary Karen Bradley outlines the options for Channel 4 and we have the gossip from MIPCOM and the Radio Academy Awards. All that and a media quiz. Why very not? It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining us at the Hospital Club today are two fresh faces to the programme, but each experts in their field. First up, I'm thrilled to welcome the broadcaster and writer Dotton Adebayo. Hi, nice to see you at a time where like the sun's pouring in. Uh, yeah, I don't come out like this in the daytime normally. Yeah, but, uh, me and Dracula, you know, we keep our hours, we do. <laughs> Does it, I mean, give us a posited history of your career for people who don't know. I'm alluding, obviously, Gosh. to the thing you're most famous for. Well, I'll tell you what, I started at the BBC when I was 12 years old at the World Service, literally went up there and offered to help them and they thought I was joking and uh, whilst I was there um, some telex came in in French and I used my sort of schoolboy French to translate it and they saw how keen I was and invited me to come in that was on the world service African service at the time Network Africa so I, I worked you're with you're outing the, the service that was exploiting children back in the uh, 1970s <laughs> what do you mean they just invited you to come in only <laughs> in the school holidays I yeah of course and, and weekends <laughs> I came in as well so I worked with the legendary Hilton File amongst others and you've also been uh, overnight on Five Live during the US election cycle uh, we're going to meet a real live American in just a second but how have you been finding the debates it's been fascinating. We've taken all the debates live. The mind boggles, let me just say that. But it has inspired our listenership over here in the, you know, in the UK. You can't imagine. I think the last kind of inspiration like this, obviously the referendum, but even more so the Scottish referendum, which had nothing to do with English audiences, not, mm. not directly in any case, fired up the imagination of people here. And the Americans have done it again. Well, next to Dotton is that real-life American. It's media analyst Kate Bulkley. Hello, Kate. 
Hi, I guess I'm going to fire you up too, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, as, as you've been firing up everyone who's been reading your media journalism for the last 25 years. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, we've got some real veterans on the show today. No, <laughs> yeah. no wet behind the ears, perhaps. Just a few years yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, has there ever been a more exciting time in media journalism? Oh, never. I mean, I think that right now it's amazing what's going on. I mean, I'm obviously a business media journalist, so I'm very interested in how the businesses are, are shaking out. So when I look at sort of, you know, the AT&T, Time Warner bid, when I see, you know, DirecTV being bought by AT&T, when I see Comcast, NBCU, when I see Netflix putting $6 billion into original content next year, all that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. And then, of course, we just mentioned the election. I mean, there's a media story there that isn't going to go away, even despite who wins, if you see what I mean. So, I mean, if we get Trump TV, that's really going to be scary but um anyway that is that isn't just like a conspiracy is it the most popular theory i've heard talking to people about what's going to happen in the u.s election is trump's going to lose but he's going to do better than people think i mean everyone's predictions are always wrong of course and then what he's going to do because he's hired all these people from fox news is he's going to launch trump tv that seems to be like a genuinely most popular prediction i hear do you, you're both nodding your head yeah i mean i think that it's definitely something he could do probably will do would probably love doing i mean roger isles has he's he's got a job opening in his cv so he could go run it i mean I, I, you know, it's an interesting time in American politics as an American who's lived outside of America now for over 25 years. It's kind of strange for me to look back because I don't really feel that American anymore, even though I sound American. Um, and I did vote in this election. But what's happening in terms of the media, it's so shrill now over there. I mean, there's a shrillness and a sort of accusatory tone to, to the way not just this campaign is going, but the way all of sort of journalism, particularly television journalism, is going in the, st- in the States that I think is really kind of scary. I suppose if Trump TV does actually launch, then suddenly Fox News' strapline of being fair and balanced will actually seem reasonable by comparison. Yeah, yeah it might. <laughs> Sarah Palin will just seem, you know... <laughs> Seem like Hugh Edwards. Uh, right, let's talk about some British media news stories. And this week, the government-funded press recognition panel finally approved a press regulator. Its name is Impress. Uh, and despite being the only organisation to put itself forward, it's taken several years to actually reach this decision. Now, that may be because some of the national papers have, in the meantime, set up their own regulator, Ipso, which sought to mitigate some of the impressively harsh punishments dreamt up by the government after the Leveson inquiry. At top of the list is that any publications that don't join Impress will have to pay legal costs for both parties in a defamation case, even if the publication wins. Uh, Kate, what do you make of this situation and the fact that none of the national papers have signed up to Impress? Well, I mean, that's the main point, isn't it? I mean, they've set this thing up and there's nobody actually a member yet, as far as I know. So that's the first problem. Well, I they point say, out there's hundreds of members, but of course none of them are the sun or the mirror or the Exactly mayor. right. Yeah. I think where I start with regulation is I always think self-regulation is best. I think, however, in this case, because the self-regulation body that's been in place before Impress um, came, on, came on the scene is basically, let's say, uh, controlled by some very big media beasts who have very different approaches to what is maybe right or wrong or where they should be on which side of the fence, that that's why we've gotten into trouble on this. And that's why this thing came up. My concern about Impress is that although it seems to be, oh, this is great, this is very impartial, look who's funding it. I mean, that they have, a, you know, there's an axe to grind there, too. So I don't think it's the perfect solution. You know, maybe it's good to have a second one, but, you know, I, it's just, it's a very complicated area. And who's funding it are charities and organizations linked to Max Mosley, mm-hmm. who's been the sort of nation's biggest yep. press... Crusader. Yeah, and he obviously has an axe to grind. He does, but he also has pots of money, doesn't he, Dustin? And I suppose that's what's unusual about Max Mosley. He was wronged by the press. Even the press now admit that they were probably wrong to report that story in the way they did. 
and yet he's rare in that he's got enough money to try and sort it out and work with Hacked Off to, to fund money into this sort of incentive. What's wrong with that? Well, it shouldn't be down to him is what's wrong with it, essentially. And the problem with the press, um, I, I don't have any silver bullet solution to it, but part of the problem, with the pro- and I have worked for the Murdoch Press, I was a journalist at the News of the World, and also I am I'm worried about this uh, new body because, you know, does it include um, book publishers, of which that's my, you know, day job, if you like. Um, there are times when book publishers are no, no different from uh, newspaper publishers and that they publish things that you could argue were news as it were but the problem with the press uh, regulation as it is is that the press feeds and wrecks the lives of the weak so we're very careful in suggesting that uh, Donald Trump's wife is a plagiarist or whatever else she might be but we're not at all careful about saying the bloke next door is a paedophile for example I know the news, uh, sorry, the private eye won a case this week about a police officer that they had called a paedophile uh, many years ago, and it turns out he is a paedophile. Granted, that kind of works in that way because there is some serious investigative journalism, but too often the press is more afraid of those with power, with money, um, essentially, because they know that they can strike back. We don't have a way of protecting ordinary people. The press is conscious of it's libeling somebody with money so that shows they are sensitive to issues of losing out in a libel case in court but for an ordinary person they know isn't going to stack up to to sell their house to take the news of the world or sun on sunday the equivalent to court then it's an unfair challenge you know the thing is that like the hacked off campaign was not about the small man in the street it was about you know Hugh Grant was part of it. I mean, there were you know big celebrities were, but even were so, upset about the fact that they were getting you know blasted in the press wrongly or rightly. Obviously, Max Mosley is a good case in point. But, so but they would say so we're famous and we've got is, money, but we're defending the ordinary yeah, people. But, yeah, so yeah. what you're saying is basically, impress hasn't solved the problem. The problem is for the little guy in the street, the man next door. He doesn't have any kind of protection. And I, you know, I'd go along with that. This hasn't really solved that problem. Yeah. Here's the thing I don't understand. This might be very very simplistic. So forgive me. But for everyone who's listening to this who actually finds press regulation a bit sort of turgid and difficult to understand yeah there was this big scandal a few years ago uh, millie dowler hugh grant max mosley la 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 we saw leveson we saw the whole thing being broadcast on the telly the implication was everyone accepted it when it came out and said we're going to put this in place we're going to stop this happening again and then over the years in between everyone just somehow managed to find a way to muddle out of it and say actually no we don't really fancy that i what? That's the bit I don't get. Like, you can't opt out of Ofcom, so why can you opt out of the press regulator? Why is that a thing? Because the press is more powerful than the regulator. So it's about yeah. the government not actually wanting to force the press to do anything. Oh, yeah, because they're not going to invoke, what is it, Article 40? It's going to, I mean, there's no way the government's going to do that. I mean, I mean, they would have to be pushed to the wall and, you know, thumbtacked there before they'd do that. The press is fortunate in that its right to publish what it wants to publish is, although we don't have a constitution in the way the United States Mm. has a constitution to defend your right to say anything you want, but the press anchors its freedom to that sort of human rights, if you like, to be able to say something in public freely and so on. And there isn't a single member of any party, I would think, that would restrict that, because they themselves say things that you'd think is beyond the pale. But within parliament they're allowed to say whatever they like and libel people and get away with it so that there would be question marks about that wouldn't it and then 
as if to make this worse this week, uh, there have been a couple of uh, stories around Ipso, the regulator they all seem to want to join, um, which haven't been that positive. They, they ruled that Kelvin McKenzie's article on Channel 4 News, uh, you remember we discussed this on the show, reporter mm. Fatima Manji was criticised for wearing a hijab whilst covering the attacks in Nice. They ruled that that article was not in breach of their guidelines. Uh, firstly, on that, Dotton, do you think that was a fair and right ruling to say yeah, oh. it was absolutely reasonable in a free press to say no. that? I say no. I really say no. I think probably... It was letter balance, of the law, but I don't think yeah, it was right. I, I don't think it was right for him to make that statement. However, either. in terms of their ruling, I yeah. think it was probably correct. However, it's the implication of his comments that I'm more worried about. As she herself said, uh, Fatima herself said, look... I don't mind somebody criticising me for the way I look. I don't mind that. But there are consequences here. If you're sort of encouraging people to take action, that's action against me personally. I've had that kind of um, vitriol on Twitter, and it's not nice. You're in a very lonely place when it happens to you, to be honest. And I think that you don't know what the consequences of pointing an attack like that to somebody because of the way that they look results in. Well, this but is also it. the implication, the implication that Kelvin made was basically that this woman, because she was wearing a hijab, shouldn't have been reporting on this event because what about all of us that are worried about Muslims yeah. hurting us? That's that, you how know, he got away with it. I That's mean, how good he got heavens. Away with it. That's how he got away with yeah, it, by saying this is an old trick of the press, by saying, look, it's not me personally saying this, but can you imagine what everybody out there must be thinking? But what an, That's awful, how he got away what with an it. awful thing to, to imply. But, there, I mean, but in fairness, in a free press, there's nothing wrong with saying awful things that's how lots of columnists okay. have their job isn't there but it, it is just when it steps over into saying someone yeah, cannot she wear shouldn't have been on any religious that, yeah. symbols in the news and, and talk about did, that group if you didn't know the background to it um fatima says it had been planned that she would be, be, be on anyway. screen yeah, yeah on, on the road to, for that program however if you didn't know the background you would think wouldn't you Hang on, Channel 4 trying to make a point with this. Mm. They're trying to make a point. Possibly. Because you haven't seen her on the TV before. Suddenly she appears out of nowhere. I think that's a valid sort of question mark to pose. Okay. But, but should they have pulled her? I mean, should they have pulled her No, the no, no, I not mean, at know, all. Not God. at all. Good for them for, for <laughs> keeping her on. Absolutely. But then the other thing that happened this week is just days after the ruling, Trevor Kavanagh, who's on Ipso's board used his column in The Sun to criticise Fatima Manji for having made the complaint in the first place. I mean, even if you think Calvin McKenzie wasn't being racist and it was just his opinion he was right to say it and it was right of Ipso to clear them, surely a situation where the regulator themselves have board members that then criticise people who come to them asking for a ruling, that's not a tenable situation. Well, it would sort of maybe make you think twice before you went to them. Right? If you know you're going to be raked over the coals for having gone and made a complaint? Exactly. And that's the problem, isn't it? People think that's exactly what he was trying to do. Well, she probably wouldn't have felt the necessity to make the complaint if she wasn't from the marginalised community that she comes from. Remember, she now stands, whether she likes it or not, as a representative for every other Muslim woman who wants to broadcast the news on television. If she doesn't make the complaint, then it just goes away and the next person is liable to be... Um, attacked in a similar fashion if she makes a complaint she does actually stand up for I mean women on the one hand Muslim women on the other hand and Muslim women who choose to wear hijab on the third hand as well she's actually making a really viable political statement there so I'm not concerned about the 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 fact that they've declined against her complaint I, I don't have a problem with that at all but I think that she was she had to make the complaint because of who she is and what she represents 
Right, well, I know what you're thinking. Press regulation is all very well, but what's going on in the quarterly radio ratings? Oh, Yes, right. it's yeah. Rage Our Time, which here on the media <laughs> podcast means it's Deegan time. It's management time. <laughs> uh, no, Matt Deegan, our man on the inside, he's... Um, He's like Chico time, but, but you know, for media industry bots. Uh, every quarter, the radio industry publishes ratings for live listening across analogue, DAB and online. And we ask radio consultant Matt Deegan from Folder Media to give us his highlights. So Q3 2016, uh, always the summer quarter can be a little bit random because people change their behaviour over the summer. Some holidays for kids and also for, for families. So you get situations where a lot of London listening has declined, but it'll probably pop back up next quarter. Also, that has affected the breakfast shows. So Radio 1 and Radio 2, Chris Evans and Nick Grimshaw have both seen their audiences drop, partly driven by that summer effect. Not great news for Nick Grimshaw, uh, who's had a bit of a torrid time on his ratings for the past couple of years. This is his lowest ever, but I'm sure we'll we'll bump up a little bit next quarter. Uh, Radio 1 as a whole, actually not too bad. Um, They had a shock of a book last quarter, but they're approaching back to 10 million, which they see internally as quite a core figure to be on. For the big radio groups, uh, mixed bag in London, what you're seeing is a very, very tight race on market share. Uh, whilst LBC is leading with 5.1%, and it has this market share that even though its reach isn't super high, people who listen to it love it, so give it a lot of hours. Then Heart and Kiss are tied at 4.4%, Capital at 4.3%, and Magic at 4.1%. All so close, and every quarter, one's ab- above the other one. Pretty much, you, you, you can't break them out. We look at the big two radio groups. Global has done well with the Capital Network. They added Juice not so long ago, the Liverpool radio station, which has helped uh, fortify its numbers. They now reach 8.7 million people and generate 50 million hours. Uh, Heart as a network uh, is approaching a reach of 10 million. They've just added Heart Extra, which is their nationally delivered version, a kind of fill in the gaps version of Heart, which on its own has generated 660,000 listeners. Poor Chris Moyles. It's interesting. Radio X has a, a real challenge. Uh, in across the country it's done really well it's got its highest ever network reach and he's done quite well nationally in london they still have lots of trouble i think it's that problem you know radio x is a different radio station to xfm uh, and so they lost a lot of listeners from the old xfm haven't been able to to really gain them in the capital but should they manage to do that that would kind of transform their national numbers even further so mixed bag for them capital extra in a similar situation a couple of years ago and now uh, it has its strongest ever uh, national numbers over at Bauer Kiss has taken a bit of a hit in London uh, and the network uh, but its sister station Kistory has done very well it's now the biggest commercial digital only radio station with 1.6 million listeners Magic has had some tough books recently bit of recovery this quarter but again it's been off stations doing very well Magic chilled generating 240,000 listeners and Mellow Magic uh, up to 380,000 and the wireless group, uh, owners of TalkSport and Talk Radio, now owned by News Corp. Um, not so hot for the sports stations, which have seen about a 12% drop. Uh, Talk Radio, its new uh, relaunched speech service, it had a good book up from 224,000 to 300,000. Its new Virgin Radio, not so good, falling back a little bit from uh, 400,000 last quarter to, I think, just around 350,000 in this one. 
Looking at the numbers, uh, lots of news about digital stations. So uh, four extras over two million, six music had its highest ever reach at 2.3. And obviously those strong numbers for Kistory. Is this a problem for local radio, for those historic analogue local radio stations? What we've seen is that Bowers local stations in England had a bit of a torrid time. Um, Hearts pretty flat. Is all this new growth coming at the expense of the uh, heritage radio stations? And will they have to come up with something new to do in the next 12 months. Matt Deegan there. Dotton, do you think digital radio listening is eating up local radio listening? You've done a lot of time on uh, Radio London. Well, yeah, indeed. And I'm very fortunate having an overtime programme to absorb a lot of the BBC local radio stations. You know, they all select Five Live after a certain time in the night time. So my ratings have gone up. I think one in four or five people listening to radio at that time of the night listening to me, if I may plug that. It really impressive figure um, as good as any others but the problem for that and I mean this from a BBC London perspective much more so than a lot of the provincial stations that probably have an identity BBC London is a different kind of beast to all the other BBC local radio stations and it is so dependent upon being distinct from the national stations and yet if it takes five live overnight the listeners are thinking, hang on, what's the difference? And why am I just not locked into Five Live throughout the day? It gives me a very similar thing to what BBC London does. So I, I think the, 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 the emphasis is always going to be on the national station and it's going to outdo the local stations. Where you have local stations, you know, BBC South or TV South or whatever it might be, I, I think that they're able to stamp a much more clear um, local identity onto their wavelength than something like BBC London. BBC London loses out. In the old days, I remember when BBC London wanted to call itself uh, BBC London Live and then take Five Live overnight. And you're thinking, well, you're better off taking the world service if you're a BBC local radio station because it's something so distinct that your listeners come back to you. But if you're taking Five Live, you're on a hiding to nothing, I think. Uh, And Kate, uh, Matt mentioned Chris Evans there. It's still the biggest breakfast show in the country, isn't it? And it it could just be a a summer blip, as he said. Uh, But do you think this is to do with the the dalliance with Top Gear hurting his personal brand? I mean, I think, I mean, Chris Evans is a little bit of a, you know, either like him or you don't. He's kind of a Marmite character, I think. Um, And uh, yes, I mean, maybe, you know, there's something called cross promotion. If you're on telly, it helps. If you're on radio, if you're on radio, it helps. If you're on telly, I mean, there's that kind of thing that's going on. Did it hurt his brand, his personal brand? Did people get mad because he failed with the Top Gear thing? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think if they like him, they're going to continue to listen to his show. I don't think we should read too much into this. My view is it probably is seasonable, and that if you like Chris Evans, you're going to keep listening to Chris Evans. Now, that said, people do get by their sell-by date. Maybe he's not as, as edgy anymore. I mean, not it's on not Radio like, 2, they don't. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of his brand. In terms of his brand. Retiring this week at the age of 90. No, I think that's two. right, exactly. So, uh, I don't knock it, it's a brilliant presenter as well. What I was going to ask though, Kate, I remember doing some stories from the United States during the time, the hiatus between the Jeremy Clarkson um, Top Gear and the Chris Evans Top Gear, and what they kept saying, the Americans were, the American commentators, I don't think Americans are going to like this sort of shouty radio presenter, and who is he anyway? Yeah, so, well they didn't know who he was. But they didn't like him, they didn't no. like his style. I no. think it's a very British style that he's got, which... I imagine will be rectified now with the new series because, um, you know, like you say, 
he's Marmite, he's Radio Marmite. I think he's a good presenter, but if you don't like him, then you're not going to go anywhere else. And this is a problem for Chris Evans. Uh, last Ray Giles, I think he had the top ever figures for Radio 2 mm. breakfast programme. You know, you can only go down from that position, really. <laughs> I mean, right. if you're yeah, saying it was true. like Chris Moyles, Chris Moyles was once the saviour of Radio 1, and then after you've saved Radio 1, where do you go? It goes downwards. Mm. There is a maximum possible listenership for any radio programme, I think. I don't know where it is, whether Radio 2 has reached that yet, but, you know, like in the music business, it's not never a good thing to say this is the best of whatever artist it is because then it stops them producing anything better coming up in part two moving on from radio to telly and asking is Shonda Rhimes penning something for the UK and could there be tough times ahead for CNN more media news in a tick but first let's take a break to find out who's on media masters this week with Paul Blanchard let's spin that wheel And it's none other than John Hardy, Chief Executive at ITN. Let's hear a clip. I was offered the job at the end of 2008 and started in June 1st, 2009, so it's seven years now. And it's no secret that the company was much more challenged than I think really anybody had appreciated it was. It was actually after I had resigned from Disney but was working through some notice that the pension deficit really surfaced for ITN. And back then was a bit of a pressure on advertising revenues and ITM was kind of losing some business and really the strategy wasn't working out so well. So I turned up at what was, I thought was going to be a growth opportunity which turned out to be a turnaround first and then move into the growth cycle which we've now done. That was John Hardy. You can hear all the Media Masters interviews for free at mediamasters.fm. Some TV news now, and Culture Secretary Karen Bradley has outlined the options for Channel 4 as the government continues to consider privatising the public service broadcaster. Uh, Kate, what is Karen Bradley considering? The last Culture Secretary was very uh, pro-privatisational, let's say, was putting that really into the ring. She has been a lot less pushing on that particular button. She still is says she's looking at it. She says she's looking at four different options. One is do nothing. One is some kind of privatization. One is, the one that I think is really interesting, is letting Channel 4 develop some more income streams. And um, the other one is just reduce costs. Okay, talk us through the income streams then. The income streams is the one that I think is the most interesting because my belief is that Channel 4, that's exactly what it has been doing and it should be allowed to do more of that. I mean, it's an interesting beast, Channel 4. It It is a public service broadcaster, but it doesn't get any public money, right? It's totally funded by advertising so they've and they've done very well with that they've also done very well with trying to figure out how to do the navigate the digital world they have all these registrations now to get people to go to the the online site Um, they've been doing targeted advertising that's all well and good they've been putting money into independent production companies and sort of a founders fund kind of get these little guys going they're going to probably sell out of their first investment in that make make a few quid that's good the one thing that Channel 4 
hasn't been allowed to do because of its remit and what's, what it was set up to do is it doesn't own production companies in terms of owning the content creation. You know, I think that that's something that should be revisited in my humble estimation. I think that they've helped spur the independent production industry in this country, but, you know, if they need to get some assets to get some more money, this is a great way to do it. Instead of privatizing it, because if you privatize it, you then have shareholders who want money because they, it's a private company. They want to return. Very different cat. Suddenly you're hostage to shareholders are saying, where's my dividend? Where's my return? Why aren't you growing my business? You know, that kind of stuff, as opposed to if you're trying to be a public service broadcaster, putting that money back into creating more different, great, edgy programs, which is what Channel 4 is all about and should remain being all about. And is it right for the government to keep revisiting this? I mean, obviously, you know, the public does support Channel 4, so they have a role. Uh, but it seems quite clear from Channel 4, the message that's coming across, even in their advertising targeted at consumers at train stations, can you please leave us alone, government? We're fine. So if they don't think there's a problem, what's the problem? Why are we discussing it? It's almost like a solution uh, chasing a problem. I mean, <laughs> governments tend to like to you know, mess around with things. Uh, the other thing is that they think they can make a, they can make a couple of uh, you know, quid. Channel 4 is probably worth about a billion so, you know, that's nice for the Treasury, but it's really nothing in comparison with what the Treasury raises, right? So it's almost like they're putting so much emphasis on this. I think my humble estimation is that the last Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, sort of wanted to go in and do something. He sort of wanted to be known for doing something, and he thought, well, this is something I can do. Privatize Channel 4, yeah, tick. And, you know, it, I, I just, I've never believed that it was the right thing to do. I don't think that the management is doing a bad job at Channel 4. I don't think Channel 4 has lost its way. They're not, they don't have their begging bowl out as the prior management did with Channel 4 saying, oh, we need more money. They're not saying that. They're actually saying, let us do what we do best. We're doing okay. And actually, their advertising is doing pretty well, given that we're going into a down advertising climate for, for TV. They're still getting a very good share of the advertising in this country. I mean, Dawson, this is going on for years and years, isn't it? It's almost like the kind of Heathrow expansion decision, <laughs> but, but in broadcasting. Yeah, it's right. But at the moment, most people want to know about how Channel 4 nicked the great British Bake Off off the BBC, to be honest. And that was a coup. That was probably as political as you're suggesting the whole you know, conversation is about Channel 4. It was probably a political decision to say, look, we can do this as well. And the government better take note of that, I would think. Well, it was but also, I mean, it's, they need, it's a commercial broadcaster. They need something like Bake Off in order to get good advertisers to come in. They need big shows. It's not like they just need the stuff that we all like, you know, on Reporter Word. All that kind of stuff is good and edgy and fantastic. But they also need some big shows to get the advertisers but to come it, in. Isn't that the point, though, that they're saying to the government, this is what we need. This is how we are. This is what we are today. It's a very different Bees Channel 4 today than when it was launched, you know, 30 or so years mm -hmm. ago. It's almost unrecognisable. Then we always thought of Channel 4 as being the, the the channel that did, you know, the ethnic stuff or a little bit of sex, <laughs> a little bit of quirky stuff that you couldn't see anywhere else, which arguably is Channel 5 now. But uh, Channel 4 is different from the way it was, very different. And I don't know if the government's quite aware of that. Mm. It, it is hard to imagine Great British Bake Off on the 1980s Channel 4, isn't it's it? Impossible. Yeah. 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 Impossible. Unless it was presented by <laughs> Janet Street Porter and someone oh, was not Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and Normsky was there saying... <laughs> 
we'll leave that because we're going to come back to Channel 4 Norsky's a lot. a mate of mine, by the way. I can do that. Emerson, I thought it was a devastating, accurate impression. That's why I had to wrap things up. Uh, let's talk about American telly. And Time Warner could be snapped up by the US's biggest communications company, AT&T, uh, after they offered a buyout for $85.4 billion. Uh, so, Kate, in your estimation, that's probably about 75 times worth the value of Channel 4. Uh, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Um, it's a lot of money. Uh, but I think that there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, AT&T is essentially a phone company, a telecommunications company. They did a year ago uh, shell out $50 billion for another little company called DirecTV, which is kind of like a Sky TV type equivalent in the U.S. Except satellite Except, isn't as well, it's such satellite, a big deal. Sky TV. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, then, and now they're looking for Time Warner, which has, is usually is a content company, so they want more content. So they're, it's not, first of all, they have deep pockets. Second of all, they are a telecommunications company that wants to move up the food chain. They call it making themselves more vertically integrated, right? So they own everything from the distribution all the way up through the content. Is that a good thing? Well, I think actually they would argue that it's all about scale. And I would agree to a certain extent. I mean, if you look at the NBCU-Comcast merger which was about, I think it was about four years ago, um, that was the same kind of thing. The idea that you needed to have scale, Comcast is a cable company, so distribution, NBCU is a content company, Paramount, all those things, so content. You need scale to make it work in the U.S. You can't actually get anything done unless you have scale. So I think that's where they're coming from. I also think to a certain extent, and if, if I was sort of being a cynic, it's almost like a Hail Mary. You know, we are a telecommunications company. If we are going to make this work, we are going to have to have more control of content. Now, that said, uh, the argument against this happening is that there's some regulatory issues. And also, I think... In a way, when a phone company says they are going to control content, it's always a bit of a misnomer because the content companies, you know, if you're HBO or CNN or wherever these channels are that they're going to get, they want to be on every platform. They're not going to become hostage suddenly to the AT&T platform, right? So there's still going to be that. So yes, they control it, but not really. Do you see what I mean? So again, it's about scale. And will the scale allow them to make the deals that they need to make? Will the scale allow them to say to customers, you need to have our service as opposed to the other guy's service because we have all this great stuff? And in, in three syllables, AOL, that's a warning from history, isn't it? Well, the AOL de deal was a, a very different deal in the sense that AOL was a complete, you know, it was really a startup. If you think about it, it just went whoop, and it was all, you know, it was an on the online giant, and they snarfled up this, you know, big content company. I mean, every at the time went, Jesus Christ, you know, what does AOL actually have in terms of assets? Look at Time Warner. Look at all these great assets. How can they possibly be buying it? But again, it was that sort of, oh my God, we're going to miss the train if we don't get this together. Time Warner has always been like that. It's, I mean, it, look, that you know, got separated from AOL. It's like it always is the kind of the beautiful content child that everybody wants to own <laughs> when they're trying to figure out their next step. I think it's a very different deal. I think it's a very different time as well. I think that now there's a lot more argument to do a deal like this. Yeah, it wouldn't than be weird if Facebook was. Time Warner now, would it? People would understand. And you know, you could argue that why did AT and T do this bid now? I mean, two weeks before an election. I mean, there's a huge, you know, there's this whole issue about Trump saying CNN, and you know, everybody's worried about you know that. Why would they choose now? Well, I'll tell you why. In my opinion, they did it now because they thought, what if somebody else comes in, like a Facebook? I mean, those guys have deep pockets, like a Google. Let's talk about CNN, Dotton, because uh, they're part of Time Warner. They've had a really great commercial year because of Trump. Of course, of course, of the election. And you were saying um, earlier about this election. It's the election that keeps on giving. We'll always 
give, at least for the next few years. Uh, we know the journalist students are going to be studying this one. CNN have done a really good job, I think, um, in breaking down. They're a great broadcaster in any case. You know, you're not going to get much better than CNN. There are two names in uh, news broadcasting that resound across the globe. That is the BBC and the other is CNN. Arguably, CNN resounds in places that the BBC doesn't resound. Of course, Al Jazeera is up and coming. I'm not ruling them out at all. But it's either Don't CNN. forget Russia TV and uh, Russia Today and Press TV. <laughs> well, I'll ask Donald oh, Trump about that. He knows a lot about <laughs> yeah. the Russians. Very close to them, as you know. But yeah, CNN is, is in a good place. And because it's been... I think aloof of all the um, partisan politics of this election, it will be in a good place in the next 10 years as well to look back on it. You know, the election is now going to resonate for some time to come. We're already looking forward to the next election at 2020, and I think that people will be going to CNN between now and then to find out what's going on. And and specifically on Trump, actually, because you must come up against this as well, presenting through the night when Trump is the story. Yeah, of course. Um, A year ago, was it right to focus on Trump, which is what CNN did? I mean, I saw that chap from the New York Times talking to Evan Davis on Newsnight saying, we missed Trump. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I saw that last night. Yeah, and And CNN have done the opposite thing. They reported all of his things live, all of his rallies. It was commercially successful, but is it the right thing to do? It was because he was the only news in town. He was the headline. You see, the mistake that Trump has made now towards the back end of the election is to try and get to try and explain 3,000 emails from Hillary Clinton. That is not a sexy headline. The sexy headline at the moment is, what did he say about women? Before, he was very, very aware of how to snatch those headlines from everybody else. And the other people, the Chris Christie's and all these people, they didn't know what to do about it because they weren't brought up in... Jeb Bush, I mean, he fell at the first hurdle because the kind of politics that he is... In inheritor of from his father and his brother that's a much more kind of like formal conservative politics here was somebody who ripped up the playbook the, yeah the, 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 entirely mm. and suggested that I'll say anything as long as it get, gets me the headline and he was able to do that and get the headlines. If I was a reporter on CNN, where else was I going to go for they a story? Had, they had to report it. I he, mean, you could, they could not report night, it. Every single night. Every single night. But you, night. you have to analyse it too, don't you? And that's something that perhaps has only really happened in the last six months. First year, Trump could get away with saying whatever he wanted because people thought it was just entertaining. And they did add fuel to that fire. That's what I'm... Mm-hmm. I, just, I mean, I, I don't get into this blame the media game. I, I just, I really don't think that that's... Yes, you know, yes. the media is covering things. Uh, you know, yes... There's a certain amount of, okay, we need to cover this. How much analysis do we do? There's always that balance. You know, we've, we've had it over in this country as well. You know, did the BBC report on balance against stuff? You know, did CNN report on balance? So there's always a but thing. You and could that's ask, a, you could that's say this. A, is LBC responsible for Nigel Farage having so much publicity before Brexit? Yeah, yes, partly. Well, well, Nigel Farage was echoing the thoughts of a lot of people. To my shock and horror, I didn't realise it. You know, we, we live in a media bubble. We don't necessarily realise what's going on. My older brother turned round to me at my aunt's 90, my 90-year-old aunt's funeral and said he voted for Brexit. I was staggered, not because I, you know, I, I have one feeling or another about it, but I didn't take my brother for being somebody that would vote for Brexit. I really didn't. I was completely staggered. And I think what LBC managed to do, and arguably CNN managed to do, 
was cut away the um, journalism bubble and say, let's go to where the story is. When you say analysis, if your listeners aren't interested in that analysis, that's the problem with this 3,000 emails. Who cares? What is it? Give me the smoking gun. Give me one email that says she... Um, committed a criminal offence and then I might wake up but just saying 3,000 emails as if we should analyse that and say yes Trump is right there were 3,000 emails nobody or most of the listeners don't care speak their language I think is a lesson that journalists need to learn from this election arguably from our election in 2015 as well speak to your listeners well, and also and listen to your listeners see what they're listen. interested in because I think that you're right about the bubble thing any media company gets into a little bit of a bubble and you you have that's why you have to get out in the field and actually talk to people i mean this whole budget cutting thing that's where we're that's why it's such a, a problem we used really. to do that you know you used to we do used that, exactly. to do that we all the, did. The, but very few people do that right. now you know we go on google and see google news to see what the news is yeah, or what people are thinking that, w- that won't work okay let's talk about something that's definitely a sexy headline that you would definitely be reporting dotton and that is that presenter ollie mann and producer matt hill won a silver award for podcast of the year Thanks. Yeah, for our other I'm, show. I'm going to get you on my pod hopping uh, <laughs> section of my program on a hey, Sunday night. Don't I'm worry welcome. about that. Uh, we're doing deals here, folks. We're doing <laughs> yeah, deals. Exactly. That's why we're at the Hospital Club. Uh, <laughs> if, if you haven't heard The Modern Man, uh, iTunes.com slash M A N N. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, last week, is there an A and E here? <laughs> uh, last week we had the Arias, the Radio Academy's new awards for the industry. Uh, let's talk about maybe some of the bigger categories than Podcast of the Year. Dotton, um, the BBC won most of them, of course. And my colleague Stephen Nolan won the Speech Broadcaster of the Year. Won, so. Yeah, he won two awards in the same week. By the way, it, it, tremendous achievement. Are you surprised, Ollie, that the BBC won most of the categories? I'm not because Global didn't enter, and that's not to say Global would dominate. The BBC would dominate, but uh, Global, specifically LBC, would probably win two or three, wouldn't they? Of course, they should. They, they should. should. And uh, I think it's an omission. It's the same kind of an omission that uh, robbed England of winning the first two or three World Cups, you know, because England refused to take part, thinking, you know, we're you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestants, we're not getting involved in all this <laughs> South American football nonsense. So <laughs> Uruguay went and won, a, a country that is equivalent of Wales that will never win again and I think that's the kind of mistake that Global are making this time around they should have been on board from the very beginning partly look it is a sort of conversation within the industry who won the Sony's okay however it is also a measure of the um, scrutiny of which your colleagues give what you do as particularly when you're a frontline presenter you don't actually know what how to you know I remember speaking to Bob Shannon who you might get on to in a moment or two years ago but you know, how, how do I improve myself as a broadcaster and he kind of like thought well no that's your job you go out and improve yourself but where is there to turn to and it, the same for the journalists on radio where is there to ch- turn to to sort of learn the craft of being a great broadcaster you do it on the job as it were and you have to have some kind of bar that you're aiming for and that bar is hang on Stephen Noden won the best speech broadcast of the year let me listen to how he does it and he does it by essentially not having any hours in the day where he's not broadcasting well as Bob Shannon said to me um, if you want to be successful on radio, you've got to be on radio. Yeah. <laughs> and as, as, as I've, I've got one more for you, by the way. As, um, what's his it's name? It's a spin-off said, podcast here, isn't yeah, it? Adebayo's Shannon <laughs> Quips. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm giving away all the trade secrets here. But as um, Eamon Holmes said to me, in his early days, 
he said he never this is going back 15 years he said he never turned down any work whatsoever because he remembers the days when there wasn't work and that's always hanging over us like the sword of Damocles as can, a presenter. can I just make one point about the awards and radio awards of course the BBC is going to win most of the radio awards it's just the it's just the weight of the BBC listenership for radio I mean I'm involved with the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards and we give two radio awards a year one for radio program of the year and, and broadcaster of the year and it's really hard to move outside of the BBC bubble for those awards. You know, it's like, I mean, who else is there? Is there LBC? I mean, it's, it's really hard to find a competitive commercial broadcaster. So, in my opinion, you know, obviously the BBC is winning all these awards, but in a way we need to sort of really help promote the commercial sector because it's a good balance. It's a but good the counterbalance. The commercial sector has got to take radio more seriously than it does. The BBC spends more time and money on its productions in the commercial sector. Yeah, but you get the money from the BBC from the license well, fee. The commercial radio has to raise it through advertising. But arguably, they raise more money than the BBC gets for programmes. And, and of course, but it pays its shareholders a lot of money. And of course, some of those BBC wins were by independent commercial companies as well, weren't they? Working for the BBC, oh, yes, yeah, which was good. Yeah. Um, but, but they all have to keep to the standard the BBC expects, and they do it for very little money. Because I've worked for a lot of those. Well, tell me about it. Well, exactly. You know about it exactly. And it, well, no, that's a question that yeah. has to be asked by the BBC whether you know it can afford to spend millions on the equivalent of the Great British Bake Off but it mm. can't afford to spend a few thousand on, yeah, a, on a, hour, a good radio program on a good a yeah. one hour long radio yeah. program no, I agree I agree uh, quick mention for Bob Shannon controller of Radio 2 because not only did his station win station of the year which I think is probably fair enough but he also had a pretty good week because he is now the head of BBC Radio as well uh, under James Parnell uh, controversy discussed in the House of Commons this week. So, how many jobs has Bob Shannon got now, Dotton, as well as being your mentor? Yeah, yeah as, as and well the as controller being, of Radio Two and he, Six he Music was and my the mentor. Asian Network. Hang on, he was my mentor. I've allowed him to leave that portfolio behind him. But he's but doing a lot. He's doing a lot. My God. But he's doing it well. Otherwise, Radio Two wouldn't have won that award at the Iris. But I'm grinning, as you would if your mentor has just been promoted. And he sent me an email this week. I, thank, I said congratulations, he sent me an email back saying at least it means that we'll be working again together, hopefully, in brackets. So I don't know whether you know, his awards will be something for me to rejoice about from a personal note or whether it's just something for the BBC to rejoice about. But I think they have got the right man in the right position to wear several of those hats. He's had a balancing act between BBC uh, Radio 2 and BBC Six Music. He's had a real balancing act. Remember, Six Music was under threat when he took it over. It was really under threat still, and um, he's managed to steady the ship there. The Asian Network arguably was part of... He was there at the ground level. One of the senior editors of the Asian Network is somebody that came from Five Live under Bob Shannon's grooming. So to the public, it might not seem as if... He's been involved in all these things for a long time, but he has, actually. But good thing, though, Kate, that there is going to be a controller of Radio 2 who isn't Bob Shannon. Uh, he's admitted that he can't do that job, that that, that will come up for... for uh... Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be doing all these jobs. It's just a lot to do. It is a lot uh, to do. And certainly, uh, certainly Purnell needed to you know, promote somebody who actually knew something about how to run a radio station, so that was good, too. Yeah. Uh, now, also since we were last on, the TV industry headed to Cannes to talk up the hot new formats that broadcasters should be buying. Uh, MIPCOM. Uh, anything catch your eye, Kate? 
Oh, there was a lot of great stuff at MIPCOM. Um, I saw the previous screening of Halcyon, which is basically um, Hotel Babylon meets Downton Abbey, which is going to be a great show. I mean, um, yeah, it's I mean it's it's really good. That was a Left Bank production. Sony is distributing it. It's going to be really good. I mean, there was a lot of shows that were coming out from which were Netflix backed and Amazon backed, which is a very interesting shift for that market, by the way. Um, there's a lot of money coming from those two over-the-top players into content production, which is good and bad. I mean, it, it's an interesting time. We're, we say that we're in the, the great drama bubble right now. In other words, there's so much demand for series drama that, you know, and money's just being thrown at it from all sides that we're almost getting into a kind of a bubble-type situation. It was mentioned several times, actually, down at MIPCOM. What does that mean? Does that mean it's going to explode? Does that mean the prices are going to continue to go up? You know, what's it mean for people who are actually trying to make drama or people that are trying to distribute drama? So it's interesting. But there was certainly a lot of good stuff. And Shonda Rhimes was down there in a big way because she won one of the big accolades at, at MIPCOM. She created you know. Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. Yeah. And she said she might be interested in working on a UK show. Yeah, I mean, she's a, she's made a lot of interesting things. Grey's Anatomy is probably the most well-known, but she's done Peak Practice. She's The Catch, which is something new, uh, which is really good. I just watched the first two episodes of that. Fantastic. She is part of the ABC Disney group, so to speak. In other words, she's got to deal with them. And ABC is the big U.S. network, and they produce internationally. So what she said was, I would love to work internationally, and I'll probably do it through ABC Disney, maybe in the U.K. She's worked with some British writers and producers before on some of her other shows, so it's not as if she's never, you know, come up against a British talent. Uh, but, you know, getting her to actually come and do something over here as opposed to something in the States is, let's say, more viable now that she's part of the ABC family. So we'll see. And do you think, Dalton, that an American writer of whatever renown can come here and make a show about Britain that is actually relevant to Brits, not just for Americans who think we're all Hugh Grant? Yeah, why not? Why not? Uh, yeah, I mean, they've got a different way of looking at things. I think they're, um, as we know from the new journalism, they've got a head start on us in terms of long-form news stories. So we are still trying to catch up with that. Arguably, that influenced the way Americans' novels in the late 20th century have um, wiped the floor with British novels, to be frank. Uh, so if they can do that in terms of novels, literally swipe the great English novel from under our feet. Why can't they do that with telly? Well, the thing about it is that what they do in America that we don't do as well here is something called writer's rooms. And writer's rooms allow you to draw on a pool of talent to create a series to keep it going a lot longer. So one of the, the problems with British drama, usually, is that you have one writer who gets tired because, you know, after you've written six episodes or ten episodes, you're done. If you've got a writer's room and you've got 15 people in there, you know, you can keep going for seven, eight seasons. So that's the kind of discipline you're that Chandra right. would bring you're to something she'd do in the UK. It's not like she would just write it from the US perspective. She would bring in British writers and probably do it that, but she would, she would run it differently. Do you see what I mean? Look, we've got a tradition, haven't we, in, in sitcoms of... Uh, uh sitcoms been written by two people Jimmy Perry the late great right. who just passed away at the age of 93 wrote with David Croft you know in, in America they do have this sort of communal f uh, sense of you know writing uh, TV together which we don't have over here we can learn a lot from there they're learning from us as well of course with all our Shakespearean actors going over there we've taught them how to act so let's face it well I just watched uh, you know The Crown last night the first two episodes of The Crown and you know it's and? it's absolutely fantastic is it it's filmic 
it's beautifully shot. The first two episodes are, I mean, they were wonderful. And, and the, the writer and uh, Stephen Dalton, who's the director, were there talking about it afterwards. And basically, it's a Netflix-funded you know, thing. And they said, you know, it was great working with Netflix. They were given pretty much carte blanche to do what they wanted. And I'll tell you, the, the money certainly was flowing. There were, you know, there were trains. There was, I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. Absolutely beautiful. But that's and, and all my British actors. An extra in it. Really? Okay. So all British actors. I'm you know, Claire Foy, Matt Smith. Interestingly, Winston Churchill played by Lithgow. I mean, mm. you know, American actor. Does he, he pull that off? He. I thought he did. Really? I thought he did. Now I'm American. Is he looking for laughs? <laughs> he did not play it for laughs. Honestly, there are no. laughs to be had. There, there are yeah. laughs to be had. There was scene, one scene in the bathtub that he had, which was kind of funny. So yes, there are some laughs. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, there is just time for our media quiz. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This week it is entitled, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye. Because, just like boys to men, we here at the Media Podcast tear up at the thought of our time together drawing to a close. Uh, so, what are these three media companies saying goodbye to? It's best of three. buzzing with your name. So, Kate, you will say... Yes? Kate! And Dotton, you will say... Dotton! There we go. Someone's on top of it. Uh, the winner is Black Mirror. The loser is Russia today. Here we go. Question number one. The BBC. What did they wave goodbye to this week? What did Great the BBC British wave... wave well, buzzing with your name. Buzzing with your name. Oh, sorry. Kate. Kate. Uh, Great British Bake Off? Correct. Hey, yes. wow. With uh, <laughs> overnight ratings of how many? Do you remember the number? It is staggering. 14 million? Correct. 14 million people watching the final... Uh, they'll be sorry to see it go. Uh, did you see what Netflix boss uh, Ted Sarandos said this week about that? Yes, he said that they were late getting into bid for Great British Bake Off. They should have made a bid, but they never thought it would leave the BBC. I mean, we've just been talking about The Crown. 
Do you think The Great British Bake Off could work on Netflix, though, really? I mean, it's a sequential weekly event, isn't it? I don't think it's really the right show for Netflix. No, I don't think that's, it is. I mean, that's my opinion. But they are trying to get into what they call more factual programming, and Great British Bake Off is a factual program. So maybe. But I, I mean, I don't think it... I thought it was a bit disingenuous for him to say that. I was sort of like, you know, really? Would you have bid big money for that? Eh, not as not as much as Channel 4 did, that's for sure. Uh, right, question number two. Who are ITV waving goodbye to? Who are ITV buzzing with your name when you know the answer? Yeah, sorry. Kate. Kate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can tell Justin, I if she gets this, this, you've lost the quiz. That yeah, is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> 120 jobs. Correct, 120 jobs uh, to save £25 million that they say good. will hit good. the business during Brexit uncertainty. I call this the other shoe drops on Brexit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've been in rude health financially, ITV, haven't I know, they? But, you know, now we're predicting that, you know, advertising revenue is going to go down because there's lack of confidence. You know, whenever you have lack of business confidence, which is what Brexit is causing, you know, advertising revenue tends to go down because people just don't invest as much. That's, that's just the way it goes. So if I'm Adam Kreuzer and I'm running ITV, I'm thinking, eh, maybe a good time to do a little cost cutting. Okay, well, Kate's won the quiz, but it's all to play for. Here's question Hang three. On. She's won the quiz already. <laughs> it's best of three. And I couldn't say my name once. I, I have a feeling, though, that Dotton might actually get this Ooh, one. Oh, okay. Okay. Who did fans of Dad's Army wave goodbye to this week? Dotton. Dotton. Please, his name starts with James. Yes. He's 93 years old. Yes. He died this week. Yeah. Jimmy Perry, yes, yeah. who uh, died on Sunday, age 93. Good for him. He, he was a massive influence on British comedy number one. He was also, I was listening to a phone in on Radio London, someone that a lot of cabbies were calling up and doing the whole I had him in the back of my cab type Yeah, stuff. yeah, I'm sure they did, actually. Bit of a local legend. He, he sounds like he was a good bloke. He wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be in the series that he himself wrote. So he wanted to be um, the Spiv, what's his name, in Dad's Army. He wanted to be one of the characters in It Ain't Half Hot Mum. And uh, sadly, that was the one series that they possibly got wrong because they were harking back to sort of a colonialist view of the relationship between India and Britain during the Raj. So it's politically incorrect to play that or to play repeats in that. But with Dad's Army, imagine my stepmother coming over here as an adult to Britain in the mid-60s and laughing her head off at what is a very, very, very British sitcom. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, we've, it's amazing. And we lost David Croft a few years ago, didn't we? And then Jeremy Lloyd earlier this year as well, who co-wrote on LOLO and a few of the others. Mm. And, and now Jimmy Perry. So they've, they've all gone. Who is going to fill that? End of, end of an era, really. They do is. not make them like that anymore. No, I think no, no, it's no, fair no. to say. The, the thing about Jimmy Perry and David Croft is that they were very good on the sort of... Um, gang show kind of thing but there is a name for it I can't ensemble remember yeah an ensemble mm-hmm. precise an ensemble um, cast they're very good at that so you try and think what would be the modern equivalents you know would it be a football team or something like that and you can't quite see it working in the way that Dad's Army worked on so many different levels you know well in the style of a Jimmy Perry sitcom I suppose I should end by saying you have been listening to uh, Dot Nadabayo and Kate Bulkley thank you very much wave at the camera and smile hey. uh, and as the titles run Don't forget you can subscribe to this show for free right now on your podcast app of choice. We're on iTunes, we're on Acast, uh, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Google Play. The tedious list goes on. Wherever you find your pods, you will find us. Press subscribe. Uh, And as you're now up to date with all the latest media news, uh, why not get inspired by listening to the latest episode of Media Masters with John Hardy? 
as well. You'll find that at mediamasters.fm. The producer of this show is Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. I've been Ollie Mann. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.